Last week I started a new series about marks of a disciple, and I'm going to continue that, and just, I think I may have mentioned this, it's a seven-part sermon series, so we'll finish up the second Sunday of August. But I'm going to read today from 1 Chronicles. Last week we were in the New Testament. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament here, and uh, I'm going to try to get through this maybe briefly today so that we can put into practice what I am preaching today. 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 31, reading from the English Standard Version. Sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Just for a few minutes today, I'm going to preach... One of the marks of a disciple is this, that disciples are magnifiers. Disciples are magnifiers, and if you haven't figured this out, all of these are going to start with M. Last week we looked at disciples are members, today disciples are magnifiers. And let me read one more verse to you, it's not on the screen, but Luke 6.40 says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so what I would tell you from this passage, this last verse, and what I am preaching about in this series is that when we are fully trained, we will be like our teacher, which is Jesus Christ. And so we want to be truly and fully trained disciples of Jesus. And today I'm going to look at the fact that disciples are magnifiers. God bless you. You may be seated. Normally, whenever people preach about praise, at least in, in a Pentecostal context, most of the time they, they preach about how it is that you should praise or how that you should magnify God. And, and just to be clear that the Bible uses the word magnify when it talks about praising God. In fact, I quoted the psalmist when he said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I did that at the beginning of service if you were here. And, and of course, the word magnify is to make something bigger, to make something uh, more clear. And in, in our situation, of course, we do not make God bigger when we magnify him. We just extol his greatness and ultimately we make him bigger to us and maybe we make him bigger to people. It doesn't change his essence. It doesn't change who he is. But in our eyes and in the eyes of those who hear us and see us praise him or magnify him, God is made bigger. But typically it would be a sermon on how to praise and 
I, I've done that, that we should praise him on the symbols, on the, the high-sounding symbols, as the Psalm 150 says, and praise him on the loud-sounding symbols, and praise him on the stringed instruments and the organs, and let everything that hath breath praise the Lord, and praise him in the dance, and praise him in the shout, and praise him with clapped hands. And all of that is true, and all of that is what we should do as a result of what I'm going to preach today, but I'm going to look today not at how to praise, but really more about why we praise. I'm going to take it from this text, but before we get back to the text, let me give you a little background story of what is the uh, reason and the purpose of the text that we are looking at. You're all probably familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't have a Christian background, you probably at least are familiar with Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, which is a lot of, uh, a lot of science fiction and a lot of made-up stuff. But the Ark of the Covenant is what God told the people to design and as part of the tabernacle plan in the wilderness. And, of course, he, he gives them specific instructions on how to build it and how to craft it and the dimensions of it and how it's to be carried and how you're to treat it. And it is part of the, the annual worship of the children of Israel where the priest would go into the courts of the tabernacle and he would offer the sacrifices. And then he would go to the brazen labor and then ultimately he would go into the, the tabernacle and into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and pour that on the top of the Ark of the Covenant called the Mercy Seat. And God would come down, the Spirit of God would come into the Holy of Holies, as it was called, and he would, his presence would be there as he would receive the, the worship and the sacrifice that the people had made. And the Ark of the Covenant became to them not just that symbol of worship, but as they traveled, and as they finally get out of the wilderness and they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, after 40 years wandering in the wilderness, the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And God has told them to take the Ark and let it lead the way. And the Bible says that as the priest's feet touched the waters of the Jordan River, the, the waters rolled back and they walked through on dry ground. It was a symbol of God's power, a symbol of God's forgiveness. And in fact, God's power would often accompany this. However, God's power did not always accompany the ark unless they were really living for him and they were following, following him and doing what it is that he had asked them to do. In a period of time when, when Eli is the, the judge of Israel, Eli is uh, he's the priest of Israel, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they, have, uh, they are sinful men. They're, they're practicing the priesthood, but they're doing it for their own gain, and, and the people have really, in essence, turned away from God. And, and as the Israelites go into battle against the Philistines, they, they take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle, expecting God to deliver them just because they have the ark. It doesn't work out that way. And the Philistines, they capture the ark of the covenant. They take it from the Israelites. And when Eli gets the word, he falls over and dies because of his dismay and the shock that they have lost the ark of the covenant. Well, God is not done. The Philistines take it and they put it in the temple of Dagon, one of their gods, one of their pagan gods. And when they, they come back the next morning... This big idol, Dagon, this big idol that they have made to their god, Dagon, is bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. They're like, well, we've got to fix that. And so 
They set him back up, and the next day they come back in, and the hands and feet of, of Dagon are broken off as God supernaturally just says, let me show you, you have the ark, but I'm still in charge, and your God is going to bow to me. And so Dagon bows to them, and, and then the plague breaks out. And this is a plague before Preparation H, the plague of hemorrhoids. God has a sense of humor. Anybody ever? God... All of the people get hemorrhoids because they are holding on to the Ark of the Covenant. And so they decide, you know what, we don't want to keep this. God is not happy. The God of the Jews is not happy that we have the Ark. And so they take the Ark and they take it to Kirath-Jerom and it stays there for quite a while. And David decides that he is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, back to where it belongs. He takes the ark, and, and as David is wont to do, he doesn't follow exactly what God says. He, he decides to do things his own way a little bit, so they load the ark of the covenant onto a cart, and they're pulling the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem, and it hits a bump in the road, and the ark is rocking on the cart that they have, and Uzzah reaches over to touch the ark of the covenant to steady it, to keep it from falling off, and And God immediately kills him because he has said, you can't touch the ark. There's a certain way that you have to do it. Nobody but the priest can touch the ark. And God kills him. And and David is upset and and he's also a little fearful. And so he's like, we're not taking this all the way to Jerusalem. I'm not sure what God's going to do. And so they take the ark of the covenant and they take it to the house of Obed-Edom. And they leave it there. And God blesses the household of Obed-Edom. He brings favor and brings blessing, and David hears about that. He says, well, maybe God's not too mad, and, and they built a, in the meantime, they built a tent for the Ark of the Covenant, and so this time, David decides that he's going to, to do things the right way, and he gets the priests who are going to carry the Ark on their shoulders, on the poles, and not on the cart. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Just a little bit before our text, David brings the ark into Jerusalem and he dances before the ark of the covenant and his wife looks out and sees him and says, it's just not dignified, it's not what kings do. They shouldn't celebrate that way. They should act more dignified. But David is worshiping his God and he is magnifying God because the symbol and the power of God is coming back to Jerusalem where it belongs. And it is into that setting that we have our text today. In fact, it actually, the, the song that David writes, it is a song that, that he writes about the, God's praise and God's glory. It actually begins in verse 7 and goes past where I read to you in verse 31. And so I'm just going to take a piece of that because it would take too long otherwise. But into that, the return of the Ark of the Covenant and the return of the glory of God to Israel, he writes this, psalm of praise and and much of what i read to you today is almost direct quotes from psalm 96 but from this i want to give you six reasons why you and i should praise and magnify god the first is is found in verse 23 it says sing to the lord all the earth tell of his salvation from day to day The first reason that disciples magnify God is because of His salvation. 
that God is worthy to be praised and worthy to receive glory because he has saved you and me. Anybody thankful that you know who Jesus is? Anybody thankful that he is the God of your salvation? If it were not for God, none of us would be here today. But more importantly, if it were not for God, in that day when we stand before his throne, it would not be a happy occasion if we didn't know who Jesus was and if he had not brought us salvation. There is in, in this text an element of both the now and the not yet. What I mean by that is this, is that in the, the moment we are to praise God and to thank Him. But, but David says this, he says, Sing unto the Lord all the earth. And the reality is that all of the earth is not going to sing God's praise. Not everybody is going to do that in this day. But there is a day when all of the earth will shout and praise God. There, the, the New Testament tells us that there is coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you and I who are saved are to praise Him now and to magnify Him now, but there's coming a day when everybody will magnify Him. There is an aspect here of both the sinner and the saints that we who are saved are to magnify God so that those who are not saved will hear of His praise and that they will want to know the God that you and I know. There is in this verse also a, a, both a singing and a speaking. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. It's part of what we do when we come on Sunday and, and we sing songs of praise to the Lord is we're following what the scripture says. We're extolling his virtues and we're magnifying him because of who he is and what he has done. That song, Clean, that was the name of the last song, just clean. That's just it's a one-word title. But that's a song of his salvation, that he has made us clean when we have come into relationship with him. He has washed us white as snow. We are to tell of his salvation from day to day. It is not a Sunday-only event. That magnifying God is not just what we do Sunday, but it is something we are to do day to day. And if I could say it this way, in the way in which I have articulated the marks of discipleship, that a true disciple magnifies God both in public and in private. That what we do here on Sunday is part of our public praise, and part of our public magnifying God, but we are to be doing that at home when nobody else is around and nobody can see. We should be praising and magnifying God. Can I get an amen? You'll also see in this, and I, I, I will just, I'll just give you a little heads up, the second, actually the last two marks of discipleship are going to do with evangelism and disciple making, but I can't wait till then to talk about evangelism and disciple making, that just wouldn't be good theology. We are to tell of his salvation from day to day. That part of what we're doing there is telling other people about Jesus. It's not that we go out in the middle of Walmart and start singing. If you want to do that, call me up. I might join you, but I'll definitely take a video. But part of what we're to do is to tell 
of his goodness day to day so that all of the earth will hear about him and will rejoice. It is an evangelism piece embedded in our praise and in our magnifying of God. All right, let me hurry. Secondly is this, disciples magnify God for his marvelous works. Verse 24, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And to dovetail with that evangelism piece that I just mentioned, when you see the word peoples here, and this is the English Standard Version translation, but when you see that word, what it's talking about is everybody who's not a Jew. Because in, in Jewish thinking, there's two kinds of people, and you see this play out in the New Testament. There's Gentiles, and then there's everybody else. There's Gentiles and the nations, or there's Gentiles and the peoples. And so here, what he's doing, he, the, the, the writer here, David, is, is telling us that we are to declare God's marvelous work among the peoples. That we are to praise God in an evangelism sense so that the people will hear and know that God is in charge. It is a matter of, look what the Lord has done. That we tell of his greatness and we tell of his goodness and we tell of his wonderful works. Not just that he created the world, not just that he made all that we see this, but that he saved you and me. That he's a God who delivers, he's a God who heals. He's a God who helps in time of need. And ultimately, maybe what we're doing when we praise God among the people is we're saying this, my God is better than your God. Anybody do that when you're growing up? My dad can beat up your dad. Anybody say that when you were a kid? Anybody get in those things? Just me? I hear some chuckles. I know it's not just me because I had all kind of people telling me that when they were a kid, when I was a kid. And I was like, I don't care because I can beat you up. That's all that matters. But we do that. We brag on our dad. Or, and what, what the writer is here telling us is that we are to be bragging our, on our God and to declare his marvelous work among all the peoples. Those who do not know him and those who do not follow him are saying, let me tell you about how awesome my God is. Let me tell you about all the things that he can do. It is an evangelism piece as well. The third thing, and it dovetails with this as well, disciples magnify God because he is really the only God. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. What David says is this, is our God has made the heavens. All of the other gods, they're just worthless idols. Just like Dagon bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant, when the Ark of the Covenant came into the presence of that idol, that idol couldn't do anything. That idol had no power. That idol was powerless. He says all of the other gods that people worship, they're just worthless idols. It's amazing 
we don't do it the same way today, at least not in our culture, but we still have the same kind of idols. We just have, they have a different face. But in ancient times, they would take a block of wood and they would carve it out and make it look a certain way, and then they would bow down and worship a block of wood that they had just fashioned out of with their own hands. Or maybe it was stone, or maybe it was gold or silver. It didn't really matter. They would make it and then worship it as though it was a god. If we're not careful, sometimes we can do that with the true God. We can shape him and mold him into our image instead of us being molded and made into his image. But all of the other gods of the peoples, they are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. It is the true God. He is the only one to be reverenced, awed, and feared. Everything else is worthless physical material and In the New Testament, we see Paul talking about idols and meat offered to idols, and he says, even if there's a demon behind the idol, it's still not anything when you compare it to our God. Fourthly, disciples magnify God because of his glorious surroundings. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. It just stands to reason that the God who has created the heavens, as the previous verse said, it just stands to reason that if He can create the heavens and He can create create all that you see, then the place where He lives is a glorious place. That you expect Even in an earthly sense, people that have a lot of money or a lot of power, you don't expect them to live in a shack somewhere. You expect them to live in a great mansion. And so you would expect that the God who creates the heavens and the earth, that His abode is glorious. The Bible tells us later after this, after... David passes off the scene and his son Solomon becomes king of Israel. That Solomon builds a temple to the Lord. And the temple is a a glorious thing. In fact, it was so glorious and so magnificent that, that after it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and it was rebuilt later, that people cried because the glory of that temple that was rebuilt couldn't compare to the glory of Solomon's temple and the gold and the silver and the architecture and the the craftsmanship and all that went into that temple. And, and, And it took seven years for Solomon and all of his workers to build the temple. The Bible tells us that Solomon built his own palace. And he didn't take seven years to do it, he took 14 years to build a palace because it was even more grand and it was even larger than the temple that he had built for the God of glory. It is that expectation that kings would live in splendor. And I would tell you that it is the expectation that the God of the universe, that the place of his abode is glorious and splendorous, as the text has told us. And 
we get a little bit of a glimpse of this in the book of Revelation where it says that there's going to be walls of jasper, streets of gold, and gates of pearl. It is going to be a marvelous place where you and I go and the place where God abides right now in that place that we call the heavens. It is a glorious and a place full of splendor. And he is worthy to be praised because of where he lives and because of all that surrounds him. Anybody looking forward to going to heaven? Can't imagine streets of gold and walls of jasper and gates of pearl. That's beyond my ability to comprehend. But whatever it's like, it's going to be awesome. And if nothing else, it's because we're going to be in the place where God abides and we're going to be with him forever. Fifthly, and I'm going to sum this up really quick, even though it's three verses. Disciples magnify God just because he's worthy. Verse 28, his strength is glorious. And verse 29, his name is glorious. And the end of verse 29, his praise is to be glorious. Verse 30, it says his creation is glorious. That everything about our God is glorious. That God never does anything that isn't wonderful. He never does anything halfway. He doesn't ever do anything that is not worthy of the king and the God of the universe. So we magnify him just because he is worthy. And lastly, disciples magnify God because he reigns. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nation, the Lord reigns. That you and I are to say among the nations that the Lord reigns. Once again, it is that evangelism piece of our worship and that evangelism piece of our magnifying God. That there is praise in the heavens. Let the heavens be glad. There is praise on the earth. Let the earth rejoice. There is praise among all the nations. Everyone and everything should praise Him because He reigns. As the musicians come, I get ready to close. Let me ask you this question, though. It is true that God reigns. But I quoted from the New Testament earlier. I said that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a, an acknowledgement by everyone at a future day that the Lord reigns. But let me ask it this way of you today. Does he reign in you? We know he's in charge of all the universe. We know he's in charge of everything. But is he reigning in your life? And, and I would say for most of us here today, 
that we would answer that question in the affirmative. We would say, yes, he is reigning. But I would also suggest to you today that that if we really look within, there are areas of our life where we're still sitting on the throne. Where we're still reigning. And, and we may know that we're reigning in that area, but knowing is only half the battle. Being willing to vacate the throne let him sit on the throne as he rightly deserves. Augustine, bishop of of Hippo in northern Africa in the fourth century, wrote a number of books, one of them called City of God. I haven't read it, I've read excerpts and one of the excerpts from that book is this. He he writes a prayer. And he says, Lord, deliver me from my sin. But don't do it right now. Ultimately, what he was saying is, I want to be delivered. I know I should let you be on the throne of this area of my life, but just don't want to give it up just yet. Lord, deliver me. Just not right now. I'll tell you, not in those words, but I've been there, done that. But we are to praise and magnify God because He reigns. Not just because He reigns out there, not just because He reigns in a few areas of our life, but because He reigns in every part of our lives today. At least He wants to do that. And none of this was in my notes or I anticipated saying it. I would challenge you today that when we pray in just a moment, ask Him, Lord, is there anywhere you're not really reigning in me is there any place that I'm holding back and I hadn't anticipated saying it and I'll I'll probably I won't I'll mess it up there's an old song let the kingdoms of my heart not kingdoms singular but kingdoms plural there are different areas kingdom of my heart. I've got a throne here, not physically, but I've got a throne in this area of my life and somewhere else in this area of my life, and he's sitting on the throne in some of those, but not every. In fact, if I could be transparent with you, I, I was, my daughter was with me, and it was just a fleeting thought that I had yesterday. We'd been up at the church doing a couple things, putting out the feather flags, and on the way home. And we are complex individuals. 
that, that I, I would tell you there are still areas that I need to work on in my life. And, and I was thinking about one of those areas that I need to work on. And, and a chain of thoughts went to a different area. And it was, as I briefly thought about that other, and this is all in like just a couple of seconds. It's not, it wasn't lengthy, it just, but it illustrates how we are. That I was like, even, and, and this is the thought process I had, that even if I wasn't serving God, I wouldn't do this. But there are plenty of things where even though I am serving God, I mess up. Anybody else there besides me? I want him to reign in my life in every area of my life. I want to be able to say he doesn't just reign over the nations, he doesn't just reign over the universe, but he reigns over and that you and I can praise Him because He is indeed the God who reigns. Would you stand together? If I could sum these back up, disciples magnify God because of His salvation. They magnify Him for His marvelous works. They magnify Him because He is the only God. Because of His glorious surroundings. Because He alone is worthy because he reigns and all of those you can find in the church app if you have it if you don't have it see somebody in the booth at the back of the service or see me and we'll tell you how to get that so you can find these notes and follow along in a service as you wish so what is it that you and I are to do the beginning of the message I told you that many times when people preach messages on this topic or this theme, it's about how you should do it, singing and clapping and lifting our hands and shouting, dancing. And, and if you're not raised around that kind of stuff, it's, it can be a little unusual. And I've watched, to be honest with you, even with the lights blind to me, I can see a lot from up here. I've watched, I watch how people transform as they get used to more exuberant worship. That people sometimes when they come in and they're here the first few times, kind of look around and watch people and, and then, you know, they'll clap their hands as other people do it. They'll lift their hands. And I will tell you to clap your hands, and I'll tell you to lift your hands because I want you to get used to doing it. So I'll watch people as they'll, as they'll do it just because I asked them to. Let's lift our hands, and they'll do that. But then you really know it's starting to catch on when they just spontaneously decide to lift their hands. They catch on that God is worthy, and it's not just because the preacher says it or somebody on the stage says this is what you should do, but because the Bible says this is the way we magnify Him. This is the way we worship Him. So I'm not going to push you too hard today, but I don't even know what they're going to sing. Probably a song sounds like King of My Heart, which we open with. 
it's not that, just do whatever you're playing. But whatever they sing, don't just let Reagan or me sing. Because we can't worship for you. I can worship all day long, and it does nothing for you. You already know I like to eat. If you've been around here, I talk about that. And what I tell people, we'll pray for, for our food, and somebody will, somebody will come to the table late. Did you guys pray? I say, yeah, but we can't be thankful for you. I can't thank God for your food. That's doing good. You've got to be thankful for your own food. You've got to praise God for yourself. My singing and my clapping, my lifting hands, none of that really matters to anybody but me and God. That your praise is what's important for you. So once again, I'm not, I don't want to push you too far outside of your comfort zone, but we're going to sing. And I want you to respond, whether it's just singing along with the words, clapping along with it, or just saying whatever it is you want to say to God to verbalize that and open your mouth and tell him how good he is. If you want to lift your hands, lift your hands. If you want to get really crazy and carried away, by all means, help yourself. But he is worthy of praise. He is worthy to be magnified. And my call to action is just twofold. That you should praise God weekly in public, which is what we're doing here but you should praise God daily in private and magnify Him daily. Before they, they close, I'll read one final verse. I closed with this last week, and my intention is to close with it every sermon in this series, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and it is in the slides. But it says this, examine yourself or test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Magnifying God is one of the marks of being a disciple. So ask yourself, examine yourself. Are you living up to what He has called us to be? A fully trained disciple be just like his teacher. So as they get ready to sing, would you, and I'll start you off, would you just lift your hands where you are right now and would you begin to talk to God and however you want to talk to Him and whatever you want to say, however you want to articulate how thankful you are to know Him and how thankful you are that He is your Savior, how thankful you are because He has done a work in your life, that He's forgiven you of your sins. God, we magnify and exalt you. We love you.